Let me ask you a question. What do you gladly spend money on? So we all spend money, and there's some things that uh, we do, we spend begrudgingly. We spend because we have to. So I don't know anybody that loves to spend money to put gas in their car, for example, but that's something that you have to do. If you have a car, you got to pay for insurance, you got to pay for gas, you have to spend money uh, to operate your car. But nobody that I know really loves to do that. But the question I want to ask you is, what do you enjoy spending money on? Like You don't mind it because you really value it. So uh, in preparation for this week, I was thinking about that question. I asked my wife, what do you gladly spend money on? First thing she said is clothes. Because clothes give her a little sense of joy. She enjoys buying clothes and, and having nice clothes. And for me, it's the opposite. I, I recognize that every once in a while, I have to go get some clothes, usually if I can not be the one that actually goes and buys them. Or, you know, this year's been great. Just get it online, have it show up at my house. That is my preference. Uh, but I know it's something I need and I have to spend money on. But I just don't value that the same way my wife values clothing. But we all have things that we have to spend money on. We have to sacrifice for. But then there's those things that we really enjoy spending money on because we see the value in it. It's something that, that we get some joy out of. And so it's, it's not a, a real hassle to spend our money and do it. Now, I am like some of you, and some of you are the opposite, but I am naturally more of a saver. So I can remember all the way back to when I was a kid, uh, whenever I would get some money you know, at a birthday or Christmas or allowance or doing some jobs for people, even as a kid, when I would get money, my natural bent was to hang on to it until I could spend it on something that I really wanted, usually a more of a big ticket item. Whereas I remember my siblings, like when they got money, it was like they knew exactly what they wanted. And as soon as they got some, oh great, now I can go and buy this or that. So I can remember, for example, when I was sort of probably junior high age and uh, I was saving up all my money. My friends and I, we were really into mountain biking and like every day after school, we would go hit the trails. And so uh, during that period for quite a lot, it felt like forever. Um, but every time I got a little bit of money, I would save it, save it, save it, save it, save it. And then finally, when I had enough, I went out and bought a really nice mountain bike. And for, for me at that time, being whatever I was, 12 or 13 years old, it cost a lot of money. It was a big sacrifice, but I didn't mind spending that money because that bike meant so much to me. I loved it. It lived inside with us, and I made sure even when I went out, if it got a little bit wet, I would wipe everything down, and I took care of it. I loved that bike, and I didn't mind spending the money to make sure that I, I got that bike. It gave me some joy, and I really enjoyed it. As I've gotten older, those things have changed, the kinds of things that um, I don't mind spending money on or I like spending money on. I have something that happens to me every summer. The beginning of the summer, the end of the spring, when it starts to get hot, I always think about turning on the air conditioning at our house. And I go, I'm going to hold off for, for as long as I can because I don't want to pay the extra utility bills and it's not great for the environment to run it all the time anyway. So I'm going to hold off, hold off, hold off. But there always comes a time in the middle of the summer, you know, when it gets really, really hot, and it's hot not just during the day, but it's hot all the way through the night. And it's hard to sleep and there's no escaping it. I almost every year come to a point where I say to myself or to somebody else out loud, I would pay anything for air conditioning. Like this is not even a sacrifice anymore. This is so valuable to me. I'm turning on the air conditioning. And if they charged me a million dollars to do it, I would try and find a million dollars to make sure that that would happen. What is it for you? What, what is it for you that you don't, you don't mind spending on? You don't mind sacrificing to get something. It could be all kinds of stuff. It could be small things or bigger things. It could be um, 
um, takeout. Oh, I don't mind. I would just spend money on takeout because I love not having to cook or clean up or I love certain restaurants. It could be going on vacations. You save up, you save up. And uh, man, I would spend anything to get away or to travel. Could be uh, home renovations. I just want to make this a space for my family or for myself that really works and that I love. And so I'm willing to spend that money on something like that. And really what it is, it's all about recognizing value. What's really, really valuable to us? Because we're willing to sacrifice for the things that are really valuable to us. You know, I read this, this past week um, that in 2008, Google bought YouTube for $1.65 billion, which seems like a lot of money. I don't know anybody personally that has that kind of money to spend on anything, but uh, Google spent that money, made that investment in YouTube. Today, YouTube brings in, generates $1.65 billion in ad revenue every three Three weeks. It is one of the best acquisitions, one of the best business purchases in history. And if you could go back to 2008, and if you could try and rustle up $1.65 billion, which I can't, but if you were a company like Google and you could, and you knew where we'd be at today with YouTube, you would make that investment. You would say, man, I would maybe take everything that I have and invest it in this because of what it's going to return one day. Another way to look at it, another example, you might think of, if you could go back 10 years and buy property in the GTA, knowing today just what's happening in the real estate market and how much houses are selling for, you say, man, I would do everything that I could to make that purchase because, again, I know the value that's coming back. I would joyfully give up all kinds of other stuff to make sure that I made that investment. So with that in mind, this teaching series that we're starting today, I want to talk about um, living rich lives. How do we live rich lives? We're going to be talking about principles that we can put into place in our lives to really experience deep, meaningful richness in our lives. Like a really good, like what would you sacrifice to have that kind of life? To know that we have more than enough. And so over the next number of weeks, that's where we're going to be going. Today, I want to start with the question, what is so valuable to you that you would joyfully give up everything to get it? The rich life. What's a really rich life for you? And if you could identify that, if you could say, this is what a rich life is, and then say, I'm willing to sacrifice all types of other things. I'm willing to give myself to this so that I can experience that rich life. That's what we want to start asking ourselves and then building principles to move towards. So today I want to look at a few parables that Jesus told in Matthew chapter 13 um, that really bring out this idea of value and will help us ask that question and maybe start to answer that question. What is so valuable that you would joyfully give up everything you have to get it? Matthew chapter 13, verse 44 says, this is Jesus. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Now, these little stories, they're supposed to be memorable. They're supposed to be a little bit shocking and thought-provoking. We're going to see a bunch of them over the next few weeks. So here you have a man. He's out in a field, and he discovers this treasure in the field. Then he hides it again so that he can go sell everything and buy this field, which seems maybe even a little bit dishonest, like he's not going to tell anybody that there's this treasure in the field. But again, that's supposed to, supposed to, again, just start to jog us into a little bit of thinking about, well, why is this guy doing that? What's so important? So here's the scenario. And apparently, um, this is something we read about in the ancient world, in the ancient Near East, that actually happened. You can read different stories of, of how this scenario would play out. So picture people who, uh, a lot of people living on farms of, of one type or another, maybe have fields like this. And uh, let's say you had some treasure. You had something really valuable. 
Well, they didn't just have banks like we have banks. Most of us, uh, most of our wealth or money would be invested in some kind of bank or fund somewhere. Uh, but that wouldn't be so for these people. It'd be their property, maybe their livestock. And if they had other treasure, they'd probably physically have it with them, whatever that treasure might be. Now, if you got to a point where you were nervous, maybe nervous that somebody was going to rob you, or maybe nervous that there was maybe, let's say there was an invading army that was, that was fighting in your region, and you thought, I got to protect my treasure, and you didn't just have a bank to go put your money into, you might go out into your property, find a place, dig a big hole, and bury your treasure so that people can't find it. So then whatever happens, uh, it's there, and hopefully when things become stable again and, and you're safe, you can go and get it. But what we read is there was times where people would go bury their stuff, and for whatever reason, they wouldn't be able to go get it before maybe they died or the property was sold or something like that. So uh, let's say uh, there was an army coming and fighting against your people and you get taken away. And then generations go by and, and the farm, the land is owned by somebody else and whatever treasure you bury is there. Or maybe you just, you know, one person dies and he's buried the treasure and the people in his family that are the successors, they don't know where the treasure is. And so maybe it goes generations and generations where it's kind of lost. That's the kind of scenario we're thinking here. So probably it's like a laborer, somebody going out, it's not their field at first, and they come upon this treasure and they go, wow, this is so, so valuable that they go, I'm willing to give up everything and buy the field. The implication is whoever owns the field owns what's in the field and they get the treasure but see that they do it. In his joy, he went and sold it. Like this was a sacrifice he was so willing to make because the treasure was so valuable. So he doesn't begrudgingly go, oh, I'm going to find some money and buy this useless field. No, oh man, there's something so valuable here. Bury that. Don't tell anybody I'm going to go. Sell everything that I have because that is worth more than everything I have. Verse 45, um, next little parable. Again, the kingdom of heaven, by the way, kingdom of heaven, talking about the reign of God or the presence of God or what God is doing in the world, God's activity. The kingdom of God is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. So this is a bit of a, a purposeful hyperbole or exaggeration. Now you have a merchant, somebody who that's their job is buying and selling pearls in the ancient world. Pearls were thought of as more valuable than than even gold, like if you found the right pearl, the right conditions, it had so much value and it was associated with, uh, you know, like, like a, a kingly, royal uh, sense of it. Like this is something that really rich or powerful people might have. And so there's a bit of hyperbole. This merchant finds a pearl that's not just valuable, but it's more valuable than everything else he has put together. So he does the same thing as in the first parable, right? We're really mirroring things. He goes and sells everything else because if I buy this, this is worth more than anything else. He sees this incredible value. Verse 47, we get a third story, similar story. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. Now, I am not an expert fisherman, but I understand a little bit about this. When I was a kid, uh, my uncle had a cottage on Georgian Bay. And we went up and visited a couple of times, and he taught me how to fish. And one of the things that we would do, this is so much fun, I, I used to love this. We would get in the boat early in the morning, and we would go out into Georgian Bay, and my uncle, he just knew where the, the greatest little fishing holes were. And we, we got our fishing 
poles and our tackle, and we would bring a frying pan and a stick of butter. And we would go out all morning and we would fish. And the idea was that uh, by lunchtime, we would, uh, we would take the boat to an island and we'd park it, we'd get out, we'd, we'd set a fire, we'd take our butter and our frying pan and we would eat whatever we caught in the morning. We also brought a package of hot dogs just in case. But that was so much fun. But along the way, what he taught me was when you fish, and especially if you're going to eat your fish afterwards, you have to be discerning. We're not going to keep every fish that we catch because some are too small and they're not worth it. Uh, some of them, they're the wrong kind of fish. They're not good for eating. Like a, a rock bass, he always taught me it's too bony and it's, it's really not great for eating. And usually those are smaller fish anyways. And so he would teach me how to look for certain kinds of fish and how to measure. And this is the kind of size we're looking for, this size and up. Um, and we would keep the ones that are really valuable and we would throw the other ones back. Same thing happening here. And this was really common. In the, in the ancient world, they would have in this, this net spoken of, it's actually a specific kind of net. It's a drag net. So on one side of the net, there's weights that weigh it down towards the bottom of the water. And on the other side, it floats. So they have this big net spanning a big area. And it would catch all kinds of fish. And in this region, there would have been a lot of fit, like a couple of dozen different kinds of fish. And many of them, the Jewish people would have considered to be unclean. So they're, they're, they're not valuable. They're not good for eating or selling. Nobody wants them. And so you'd see fishermen who would, they would drag the water and they would catch all kinds of fish. Then they would collect their fish and they would go, okay, these ones we can't sell and we can't eat. And they would throw them back. And then these are the ones that are the right kind of fish on the right side. These are the valuable ones, and we're going to make sure we keep them. So we have the same kind of idea. There's this great value, and we're going to spend the time and the energy and the investment to be able to make sure that we take what's really, really valuable. So three characteristics of these three metaphors that we've just read. One, the treasure is hidden. You could miss it. It's not always obvious to everybody. It's below the surface. You have to dig deeper. So it's like treasure that's buried. You got to get deeper. Or it's like a pearl that a merchant has to look at and realize how valuable it is. It might not be obvious to the average person. Or the fish where you got to go under the water and you got you to bring them up to see which is good or bad. So number one, the treasure is hidden. It's deeper. It's below the surface. We might have to really look for it. Number two, the treasure naturally is valuable. So it's a pearl. It's a treasure. It's a good fish. It's something that we want to hang on to. And especially in the first two, it's something that we would sacrifice greatly for to make sure that we get. And so number three, the treasure is purchased. It's bought. It's, hey, I'm willing to make sure that we acquire this. So then we ask ourselves, well, what, do, what, do we, what are those things? Like, what do they equate to? So uh, most, most of us would probably say something like this. The treasure or the pearl uh, might be uh, God or salvation or a relationship with God. That we, It might be under the surface. We might need to go deeper than just the things that we obviously see in life. But we want to go deeper and we want to... We want to make sure that we, we get more of God, more of God's presence. We become aware of him or salvation, that we, we, we get what he wants to give us. And so the, the man or the merchant, we often think is, is me or maybe a better way of thinking is us collectively. Uh, humanity, we're the ones in the field and we don't want to miss out. It's hidden, but we want to go for it. We want to get the treasure. And the required action is that we should give our entire lives, sacrifice everything to get God, to get salvation, uh, to, to get what he wants to give us. 
And so that's how uh, so many people, we interpret that, those, those verses, right? So um, we are the ones walking in the field. And, and if you're willing to look, or we're the merchants, and if you're willing to look, or we're the fishermen, and, and if you're willing to, to get under the water and catch those fish and, and start to discern them, then you'll realize the value and you'll want to give up everything to get more of God or to, to receive his salvation. And that is probably true and probably a good interpretation. But I think not the, well, it's not the only one. And I think it probably doesn't go far enough. And there's a couple of reasons why I think that. One of them is because I might stop and go, well, but what if I do miss the treasure? That's a big problem. I mean, that'd be terrible. Like the idea that many of us could just miss the treasure. Or what if I don't understand its value? Or maybe even a better question would be, what if I'm not able to sacrifice everything to follow Jesus? Because I feel that way a lot of the time. There's a lot of moments where I go, I'm not giving everything in my life. It requires everything. I might want to, but that is such a high price. And I struggle with that over and over and over. So on the practical level, we might struggle with how that works. But then on an interpretive level, if we keep reading the interpretation of uh, specifically the fish metaphor, it turns us around a little bit. Listen to this. Verse 49 says, this is how it will be at the end of the age. This is in reference to the fishermen who have separated the good fish and the bad fish. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing fire where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay, so now if we thought that we're the fishermen and we're trying to get the good value of the good fish to keep what's really good, and that might be God's salvation, however we describe that. But now we get the interpretation and we say, oh, it's actually the angels. These are the messengers of God, those who work on behalf of God. So this is, it's actually God who's doing the fishing. And it's the righteous and the wicked that are being separated. And the idea here is that everything valuable, they're going to keep. And that which is not valuable, they're going to throw back. So we recognize there's a lot, of, a lot of good in the world and then there's a lot of not good in the world. But everything righteous, the righteous, they're going to gather up. They're going to see the value in that and keep them for God. So then you go, wait, that turns it around. The active agent, the one looking for and seeking treasure would not be us. So then I, I stop and I think, can you think of a, a character in the Bible, let's say, who was sent somewhere because they saw such great value, they had such great love, that that character would be willing to give up their entire lives to secure that treasure? Is this not the story of Jesus? Is sent into the world that he loves, for God so loved the world that he sent his son. This is the core of the gospel that, wait, whoa, maybe, maybe the pearl of great value, maybe the great treasure, certainly the fish, because we have the interpretation, is actually humanity. Maybe it's us. And the one in the field and the merchant looking for value is Jesus who has come to find value in us and to make sure that he buys us up. The word literally means to redeem to redeem that which has great value and to make sure he has it. What is so valuable to God that he would joyfully give up everything to get? And the answer is humanity. The answer is us. The answer is the world that he loves. Isn't that staggering? And when we stop and say, I can't, I, I can't always actually give up my entire life to follow Jesus as much as I wish I could. I fall short of that. I sin. I just, I can't get there. 
But here's the one who comes and finds value in the ones he loves and willingly, joyfully read in Hebrews. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross to redeem, to buy back his people. Now you might say that interpretation seems dangerous. It seems um, human-centric instead of God-centric. We're the poor, we're the pearl, we're the treasure, we're the, we're the fish that he wants to keep. Won't that make us arrogant that put ourselves at the center of everything. And I get that, but I think that actually the opposite is true. It makes us humble because we recognize that the, the, the reason why we are valuable to God is not because of anything that we've done. In the, the language of scripture over and over and over, people are referred to as the children of God. Isn't that beautiful? The sons and the daughters of God. See, we often want to attribute our our worth or our value based on the things that we've done, our titles, things that we've amassed. Here's who, I, who are you, who, who I am. Well, uh, I'm a husband and I'm a father and I'm a pastor and uh, I've done this and I've done that and I have this accomplishment and, and this kind of education and all that kind of stuff. But children and parents, you know this. When, you're, when your children are born, like the minute they're born and you hold them in your arms and you look at them and they've done nothing for you. They've achieved nothing. They've accomplished nothing. They have nothing. They're completely dependent on you for everything. And you look at them and you go, I love you. You're my child. You're one of us. You're one of the family. I will greatly value you. No matter what happens in the days and the weeks and the months and the years to come, you are my son. You are my daughter. It's kind of what we're seeing here, this great treasure. I would do anything for you. Pearl of great value. I would sell everything that I have to make sure that I'm in relationship with you. It's really, truly amazing. Now, here's, here's unfortunately how in a lot of our, our Christians' ways of thinking, we sort of lay out the Christian message. We start with this. We're sinners. We're bad people. We're, we're not worthy of being loved but Jesus loves us and has died for us so that if we trust in him, he'll forgive our sins and give us eternal life. I believe that's, that's true. This is all really important parts of putting the gospel together, but it doesn't go far enough. And it, 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 it's actually very dangerous because if that's the entire way you think of Christianity, if you become a Christian, you put yourself over here, I'm saved now, I'm forgiven. If you start with everybody's a bad person and a sinner, until you're saved by Christ, and then you're being made uh, new in Christ and you're saved, then it's easy to become very judgmental and condemning. It's not very attractive to people because we look out and we go, oh, look at all these terrible sinners, these bad people doing bad things. But when they get Jesus and then they'll, they'll be okay, like I am. And so it kind of sets ourselves up in this very judgmental place. Now, we don't want to be delusional about the fact that there is a lot of pain and suffering and sin in the world. We do bad things. We are sinners. That's an important thing. But it's not the most foundational thing. I want to tell you about a, a very important doctrinal idea called the imago die. It's a Latin phrase that means the image of God. And this, I will argue, is where we need to start. Before we go to we are all sinners. We start with, we are all created in the image of God. It comes from Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. Right at the beginning when God, you know, this beautiful picture of God creating the, the, the heavens and the earth and all the things in it. And he comes to the climax and he says, he makes male and female. He makes every human being in his image, in the image and likeness of God, he creates them. 
That's the beginning. That's the foundation. That's where we start. It means this, like C.S. Lewis said, when you look into the eyes of another human being, you've never seen an ordinary person, but instead an immortal image bearer of God. That's where we start. No matter how marred that vision is, no matter how buried it is, no matter how uh, sinful we've been, no matter how destructive our lives have come, no matter how far off path we have got, we start with this. Whenever we look any human being in the eye, and I cannot, uh, I cannot emphasize enough, every human being, at the core we're looking at someone created in the image and likeness of God. That is their identity. It's who they were created to be. Every single one of them. If we start with that, now we, we then come to the fact that, well, we're all sinful and that that, that image of God has been, uh, in a sense, it's been, it's been buried or it's been distorted. And that's important and that's true. And we come to Jesus and we come to Jesus to forgive our sins and to give us eternal life, that deep, rich, abundant life. But where we start is with the imago Dei, the image of God stamped onto the life and the identity of every single human being. Which means when we look out at people, whoever they are, whatever their background is, whatever category we might have put themselves in, fundamentally they are an image bearer of God. Do you understand what that does to how we live when you get that? Because look at the history of Christianity and not just Christianity, the history of, of humanity and the way that we look at one another and some of the terrible things that we've done to one another, the ways we've been condemning, the way we've separated ourselves, the way that we fight wars against people who are from a different nation or a different religion, religious wars, the way that, that, that we, we separate ourselves out the way that we put ourselves up and other people down and all the pain that comes from that. When, when you start with the image of God, you can't get away with any of that. Because when I look at every other human being in the world, I see an image bearer of God. How could, I, how could I do violence to that person? How could I hate that person? How could I want to destroy that person? How could I want to hurt that person? They're an image bearer of God created to be a beloved child of God. Paul talks about this. Um, Colossians chapter 3, he says, he's talking about the way that we live. And he talks about some negative things that we do that really hurt each other. But then he says, you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge of the image of his creator. He's going back to this whole idea, the Imago die. This is what Christ does for us. He put on the new self, which is our true self, who we really are, which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of creator. It's coming back to who we were created to be. That's the base. That's the foundation. Here, he says, there's no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. So what he says is, and we have time to go through all these categories, but you, you find it really easy to have this dual, dual mind about who's in and who's out, right? Jews and Gentiles. Category and category. Which one are you in? That's how we're going to judge people. He does this in Galatians too, and he throws in um, genders, male and female. He goes, there's no, more, there's no more of that. We don't distinguish this way anymore. Instead, he says, Christ is all and is in all. This is the distinguishing factor. Where do we find God? We find God located in us, Christ in us, and Christ is in all. When you look everywhere, you see Christ. We don't have these, these distinctions anymore, these categories anymore. We're all image bearers of God. And so we're looking to find that again, to renew that, 
That's what Jesus does for us. He renews that image, brings us back to who we were always created to be. And so Paul's arguing, you need to, you need to see that extreme value, right? This great pearl of great value. And what is this? Christ in you. Where do we find God? In you. Christ values you and located in you. And therefore, in all of us, Christ is, is all and is in all. Everybody's created in the image of God. So what does that mean? I mean, the implications for sexism, racism, homophobia, judgment, condemnation, all these ways we separate people and put us here and them there and, and who's in and who's out. And we go, oh, fundamentally, we're all image bearers. And what we're longing for is to find the great pearl, Christ in us. I mean, that's what Jesus values so much, the image of God stamped in us. Paul will say uh, in another way, I think this is sort of a response. He says, when you, find, when you find that, when you kind of become awake to that reality that Christ is in you, that God's presence is in you, that you just need to receive that, accept it through the forgiveness that Jesus offers, and then, and then you know you can live out of that. And then this is what he says, I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. He just listed all the, all the ways that he identified himself. He was a great religious guy. He was from the right family. He had all the right accomplishments, all the right education. He says, yes, everything else is worthless, as in I would give all of those things up. I would sell them. I would sell them and give them away. Compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all garbage, so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. So what is the great pearl of value? Is it God or is it us? I would argue maybe it's both. It is seeing that we are God's treasure. Jesus would come into the world and gladly give up his life for us because we are his treasure. And when we see that we are God's treasure, we can then respond knowing that he is ours. This is principle number one. How do we, how do we, how do we get rich? How do we become rich? How do we live a rich life? We get rich by discovering. By discovering that we are God's treasure and that God is ours. It's this, this beautiful coming together of divinity and humanity that we were always created for, that we see, by the way, perfectly in Jesus. Fully human, fully divine, smashed together. The kingdom of God is like this, this hidden, you gotta go deeper, you gotta look for something more, but it's so valuable, and what do you see there? You see that God treasures you. And listen, that means everybody. That means you, you have to, Ascribe that to everybody. But listen, if you're someone right now and you're struggling with self-value and self-worth, it's for you. It's for you too. That God values you that much. You are his treasure. And when you get a picture of that beauty, because everything's going to flow from that beauty, the grace, the forgiveness, generosity, everything good and beautiful is going to flow from that, right? Everything about, yes, then we come and we recognize that we're sinners, we're not in the right spot, but then we know that Christ has come to us to buy us up, to redeem us by dying for us so that we can live the, the rich life, the abundant life that he gives. We start with this beautiful place. God treasures you and values you. You're his, his, his pearl of great value. When you realize that you are God's treasure, you can turn and go, and he's mine. Of course, he's ours. What a beautiful, beautiful picture. And so we get rich by discovering that we are God's treasure and that God is ours. 
when we can do that. And we see that the answer is, what is so valuable to God that he would joyfully give up everything to get? And the answer is humanity. The answer is this world. Then we can answer our question. What is so valuable to me, to us, that we would joyfully give up everything to have? And Heavenly Father, if we could just, if we could just grasp this so deeply underneath the surface of our lives, we would pray that you would fill us up with your love, with your grace. And then you would help us to respond to it. And in the moments where we would acknowledge that it's so hard for us to give up everything for you, would you remind us that you've given up everything for us? And may that beauty and may that wonder overwhelm us and motivate us to make, to make sacrifices of everything that might, that might distract us from following Jesus and knowing the presence of Christ in us. And there, God, we pray that you would help us to discover, rediscover a real rich, meaningful, beautiful life lived with you. In Jesus' name, amen.